Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. You will get, I think, a fairly good picture of what Brett Kavanaugh thinks is settled law and what is not. And that will tell you a lot about what kind of a judge he is. That's Nina Totenberg. She's a legendary NPR reporter who's been covering the Supreme Court for decades. I speak with her about breaking the Anita Hill-Clarence Thomas story, derailing a different nomination with her reporting, and the prospects for the confirmation of Judge Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay tuned is supported by Secret Deodorant. And here's why that makes sense. Strong women are the secret sauce of Stay Tuned. You've heard many of them on our episodes, and there are strong women working behind the scenes on every show. And the folks at Secret know that my listeners are strong women, or their friends and family. Secret Clinical Strength Antiperspirant is made for strong women. Let's break it down. Secret is just a name. You can tell anyone about it, and you should. Clinically strong means it's extra good at preventing sweat. Twice as good as regular antiperspirant. That's why it's on the top shelf. It's midsummer, and it's a million degrees out. And the world is giving us all plenty to get hot and bothered about. Everyone needs an antiperspirant deodorant that can keep up. But not all of them are made for strong women. So, whether you're sweating from the summer heat, from the midterm elections, or stress over Supreme Court confirmation hearings, give Secret Clinical Strength Antiperspirant a try. Okay, let's get to your questions. Hi, Preet. Uh, this is Brian Starrett. I'm an attorney calling from Greensboro, North Carolina. Calling with a question about the Mueller investigation and the, the recent indictment uh, announced against Russian intelligence officials, you've long said, and I've always thought, that Bob Mueller was a public servant beyond reproach. This is the first time I've wondered just slightly about that because I find the timing of the indictments very curious, particularly given that the president is set to meet with um, Vladimir Putin within uh, just a day or two of the announcement of the indictments. It seems like that it's at least possible that that's motivated by a political angle. Would love your thoughts on that. Thanks so much. Brian, thanks for your question. That indictment that came down last Friday is really significant. So before I get to your question about the timing, 
I want to take one quick step back and just sort of discuss what it means for the overall Mueller investigation and people's reaction to the Mueller investigation and the particular reaction from the president of the United States. So every once in a while, it's worth taking stock of what the Mueller investigation is about. And the way I look at it, it's about three distinct things, although they can overlap. One is whether or not the Russians interfered in some way with the 2016 election and whether by doing so they committed a crime. And even if not, if it was something that we should be worried about in terms of national security and electoral security and everything else. So number one is did the Russians do something in the election? Number two, and what you know sort of occupies a lot of pundits' time, is whether or not anyone on the Donald Trump campaign conspired with the Russians in connection with interfering in the election. That's what people broadly refer to as collusion, but collusion, as we've discussed many times on the show, doesn't have a particular legal term. It's not a specialized legal term. It's a broad term that reporters invented to talk about you know, Trump folks allegedly you know, doing stuff with Russian folks to interfere with the election. And then third, as a result of a lot of things that have gone on, it appears that the Mueller team is also looking at issues of obstruction. So you have Russian interference, Trump campaign conspiracy or collusion, and an obstruction. On all three of those points, the president of the United States and his lawyers have said none of it is true. In particular, they say that there was no collusion. The president likes to say there's no collusion. That remains to be seen whether or not there are people involved in the Trump campaign and there's arguments to be made that there are hints of collusion and that the press conference he had this week with Vladimir Putin was overt collusion in some ways with respect to covering up what happened during the election in 2016. But the one thing that I think is absolutely clear that the president denies and then undenies and then denies again is whether or not the Russians engaged in election interference and an attack on the country and on our democracy. And although an indictment is a mere collection of allegations and people are innocent until proven guilty, if you read the indictment against 12 specifically named intelligence officers in Russia, and you know how the Russians work, and you know that the GRU, which is the Russian military intelligence agency that's responsible allegedly, and you know how they wouldn't do anything without the approval and some reports say the direct uh, supervision of Vladimir Putin, you know that the evidence is incredibly powerful. It was powerful before, and the, the collected wisdom of our intelligence agencies say that the Russians specifically tried to do something to the election. And now you have, if you look at the indictment, specific times, dates, literally times of day, when particular people who were named in Russia searched emails and searched computers of people at the Democratic National Committee and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, or the DCCC, as it's called, they must have some basis to have such particularized evidence. It's, they're not broad brush allegations that some folks in Russia who are not named engage generally during a, you know, a broad time period in certain kinds of hacking activities. The spear phishing is defined and described with great specificity. The searches and exfiltration of information is described with great specificity. I had, based on that and knowing you know, the integrity with which the Mueller team does its work, um, that they have a trove of intelligence information that they got declassified in order to bring these charges. So it's really significant. And to the extent anyone can ever say that the Russians didn't have something to do with interfering in the election, that seems to be nonsense. And quite frankly, most recently, there's been a lot of talk about the press conference following the meeting between Trump and Putin. But you know, recall one thing that's, I think, really important from that that has not been played up quite as much as the president's weird words about it. And that is when Vladimir Putin was asked 
if he wanted Donald Trump to win, right? That's a point in question. Donald Trump makes it a big point to say, you know, even if there was interference or meddling, it's unclear who the Russians wanted to win. He has suggested that the Russians would have preferred Hillary Clinton. Vladimir Putin was asked directly to his face, did you want Donald Trump to win? And he said without hesitation, yes. So both Vladimir Putin's response at the press conference on Monday and the indictment from last week and all sorts of other evidence, I think, put to bed, to my mind at least, once and for all, the first thing that the Mueller investigation is about. Did the Russians interfere? Now, your question about timing, it's a good one. You know, when I was a prosecutor, we got accused from time to time of, you know, timing particular indictments and charges because it would have some particular effect. And in our case, you know, that was never true that I can think of. The one time, in fact, and I think I've talked about this as far back as the first show, when we were bringing our own case against 10 Russian nationals who were spies and living in America that we brought in, I think, June of 2010, there was a lot of concern about the timing of that because of how it would affect U.S.-Russia uh, relations. And there were Russian officials of, of a very, very, very high nature in North America around the time that we had to take the case down. And so there were delicate discussions about you know, when we would make the arrests, when we would make them public. So sometimes when you have sort of international considerations like that, there is a discussion, as they say, through an intergovernmental process to decide what makes sense so that both justice is done and that other American interests are preserved. In this case, when Rod Rosenstein announced the indictment against the 12 Russian nationals last Friday, he made it a point to say that he had briefed the president. So, you know, as far as timing goes, this was not something that came out of nowhere. It seems like, you know, they had the case ready. They had the information they needed to be declassified on the time frame that it was. And I take Rod Rosenstein and others at their word when they say this was when the case was ready to happen. And maybe it's just a coincidence that it was ready right before the meeting between the president and Putin. This next question comes via email from Colleen. The question is, how is it that Paul Manafort is sitting at the time of this question in a jail suite with his own TV, computer with extension cord and bathroom while wearing something other than the standard uniform? That sounds like a B movie. Thanks, Colleen. I've wondered that a little bit myself. You'll recall that Paul Manafort first was granted house arrest, so he wasn't incarcerated with, you know, very serious bail terms. And then he was caught allegedly trying to coach witnesses, which was a violation of his bail. And there was a proceeding in which the government then asked for him to be remanded, which means bringing him into custody pending trial. And he was brought into custody. And then there have been reports that because he is a high profile defendant, that for his own safety, he had to be kept apart from the other members of the prison population. And so it, it may be that this is standard operating procedure at the particular holding facility. You know, I'm more familiar with the Metropolitan Correctional Center that adjoined, you know, my office and the courthouse in the Southern District of New York, where they don't have such accommodations for folks. So maybe it's standard operating procedure. More likely, however, even though they believe that he is at risk of engaging in further interference with the fair trial process by coaching witnesses and doing other things and felt that he should be in custody pending the result of his trial, they didn't want to be overly onerous. And it's a high-profile case, and a lot of people are looking and complaining and saying, you know, he's not really a risk of flight. He's not really a danger to the community, although, you know, he's interfered with the case a little bit, according to the government prosecutors. And they're probably bending over backwards a little bit, as sometimes prosecutors do, to make it clear that he has access to his lawyers, that he has access to the documents that are relevant to his case, uh, that he has no basis for complaining 
that he wasn't, wasn't able to adequately prepare. And that's a way that prosecutors protect their own cases, not just from, you know, scrutiny publicly that they're being heavy-handed, but also prevents any possible argument on appeal that he did not have an ability to prepare for his own defense. Every, you know, everybody who's charged with a crime has a right to counsel and has a right to be able to properly prepare for his defense. And you'll recall, maybe you've seen this, that Paul Manafort started to make such arguments. And the reason we know about, uh, you know, how cushy his conditions are was that he made an argument that was BS and claimed that it was a terrible life that he had and he wasn't able to prepare. Meanwhile, he's in these very comfortable surroundings with a lot of access to documents, computers, and his lawyers, as you describe in your question. And in fact, was recorded uh, as is allowed to happen in, in every jail that I'm familiar with, recorded saying to people that he was being treated like a VIP. So once again, Paul Manafort is making himself out to be an unsympathetic figure. All of this material and information is now in front of the court. And so on top of the original allegations, and on top of that, the witness tampering, and on top of that, you know, sort of false allegations of self-pity and not being able to prepare for his case, I think the judges in his matter are not going to be predisposed to finding him sympathetic or credible if he ends up testifying at trial. It's good for the prosecutors and the protection of their case, and it's also very, very bad for Paul Manafort. Hey, Preet. Uh, this is uh, just Deep Singh from Yerba Linda, California. Love your show. Such a fresh breath of intelligence that I look forward to every week. I uh, just had a request. Can you please interview your parents? Would love to hear what they worried about raising you guys and how they did such a good job. I'm really worried about raising my kids in a country that seems to be taking a step back from meritocracy and values that I honestly thought were uh, set in stone. Hoping to get some best advice from your parents. Thanks. <laughs> uh, just deep saying, thank you for your question. Thank you for the compliment. My parents are really going to love it. Your question about whether or not I will interview my parents, the answer is no, because God knows what they will say. And, you know, I need to protect my reputation. And there's lots of things they can say about me and my brother when we were growing up that I would prefer not become public. So I've taken out various restraining orders against them. So they will not be able to speak. So I apologize for that. But a couple of quick things. One, I did talk a lot about growing up in New Jersey, you know, as an Indian immigrant family from South Asia on another podcast, Remade in America, with Basim Yusuf, who was my guest at the Apollo Theater, and that dropped this week. So listen to that. And it's not my parents, but you'll get a little bit more of a sense of what it was like. And I, I take your point about a worry that in America, we are taking a step back, especially in how we think about diversity and how we think about people who come from other countries, whether it's Africa or Asia or Central America or South America or Europe for that matter. And I've spent a lot of time on the show and on social media criticizing this new closed-mindedness about immigrants. I'm a very, very proud immigrant. It sounds like you are too. And I think immigration makes the country great. And I think that to the extent we're talking about restricting access to the country for people who are either at the border trying to seek asylum because they're fleeing mind-boggling, unspeakable violence, or other people who are coming from places where they're being persecuted. That's what this country has always been about. Or you're talking about people who are coming through the legal process to come and work hard here. You know, when, when Donald Trump stood in, in the UK and started talking about how European culture was being undermined by the influx of immigration, he wasn't talking about, I don't think, illegal immigration. He was talking about immigration generally from people who are brown or black 
And I sent a funny tweet on the subject uh, saying something like, you know, London without Indian food, you know, ain't any kind of paradise. I think that the, the majority of Americans agree with you and me that America is strong because of diversity, that America is strong because of immigration, that America is strong because we are welcoming and open-minded, and we are strong because the Statue of Liberty remains a symbol for the country. So there are a lot of terrible people who are saying terrible things about folks who come from elsewhere. I would pay them less mind, and I would vote the way you want to vote, and tell your kids that America is still the greatest place on earth. Uh, one other thing happened this week that I just want to mention. You know, when I was in office, I spent a lot of time, along with all the career professionals in the office, doing lots of different things. But one of the priorities we had was the battle against public corruption, which was taking on something of an epidemic nature. And it still exists in New York State, especially. It's not unique to New York, but there's a lot of public corruption in New York. And we charged a lot of officials, including at around the same time in 2015, the Democratic leader of the New York State Assembly, Sheldon Silver, and also the Republican majority leader of the state Senate, Dean Skelos, for various public corruption crimes. And both of them were convicted by excellent teams of career prosecutors working with investigators in my office and the FBI within 11 days of each other at the end of 2015. And I'm extremely proud of the work that the assistants did in that case and the agents did in that, in that case, in both cases, and justice was done. And the, the evidence was overwhelming, and I spent a lot of time in the courtroom and outside the courtroom, and they are among the proudest accomplishments from my time in office. But that wasn't the end of the story. There was a case called United States versus McDonald that was brought by prosecutors in Virginia against the former governor of Virginia, and the Supreme Court, in its wisdom, decided several months after we convicted both Silver and Skelos to narrow the law. The appeals court in both cases said even though there's a lot of evidence to support the convictions, in an abundance of caution and to be extra conservative, they reversed both convictions and said they have to be retried with the judges in each case giving the proper instruction that now complies with the new Supreme Court ruling in McDonald. Now, a few weeks ago, Sheldon Silver was convicted again upon retrial in front of the same judge using the same evidence, but the new instruction consistent with McDonald. And that was a good moment for the people of New York State and anyone who cares about the scourge of public corruption. And just the other day, Tuesday, actually while I was taping the interview with Nina Totenberg, Dean Skelos and his son were convicted once again on all counts of everything with which they were charged. And I want to just congratulate the Southern District of New York and thank them for their work and their diligence and the fact that they didn't give up on those cases. And I expect both of those men to be sentenced to substantial prison terms as they were the first time around, Supreme Court notwithstanding. My guest this week is Nina Totenberg. Back in the 1980s, it was her reporting that scuttled the nomination of Judge Douglas Ginsburg to the Supreme Court. A few years later, she broke the allegations of sexual harassment against nominee Clarence Thomas. Now she's preparing to cover the confirmation hearings of Judge Brett Kavanaugh. We talk about what she sees coming and how it fits into the story of our highest court. And side note, she was in D.C. and I was in New York for this conversation. You'll hear why that matters in a second. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay tuned is supported by ZipRecruiter. Every leader needs a good team. No one succeeds on their own. Not a lawyer, not a podcast host. That's where ZipRecruiter can help. 
Their matching technology and easy-to-use website make hiring simple, fast, and smart. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Preet. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash P-R-E-E-T. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Nina Totenberg, thank you so much for being on the show. It's really my pleasure. Audio is so good. You don't have to, you know, comb your hair. Although I look fabulous, darling. I'm sure you do. <laughs> I'm sure you do. I was talking about myself. blue dress, and I have blue <laughs> earrings that I just took off that match my dress. Nina, I would, I would begin by asking what you're wearing, but I think people would find that offensive. <laughs> well, I don't know. What are you wearing, Preet? <clears throat> I'm in a baseball cap, a black T-shirt, um, and sneakers. Sounds hip. Um, so I've known you for a very long time and known you through your work for an even longer period of time. But the last time I think we were in the same room together was with respect to a, one of my favorite cases. It was, you know, not the hugest case in the world, but it meant a lot to your family. Your father was a very famous violinist, and he had had stolen from him 35 years earlier a, we're going to call it priceless, a priceless Stradivarius violin. And then through some of the work of the FBI, that violin was found. And then I got the honor and privilege of presenting your father's violin to you and your two sisters about three years ago. It was wonderful. When I got home that evening, my husband said to me, you should see your face. My father had died two years, I think, earlier, at the age of 101, still teaching on his deathbed. Wow. And he was a remarkable human being, and he was realistic. He never expected to see the violin again after it was gone for six months to a year. He used to say when people said to him, Professor Totenberg, do you think your violin will ever be recovered? And he would say, after I have kicked the bucket. <laughs> <laughs> so He almost made it. But you, you know, there was a suspicion as to who had stolen it, right? Yeah, it was a person he had always thought had stolen it but couldn't prove. Was it a student of his? He wasn't a student of his. He was a student and aspiring young violinist who hung around the Langey School of Music and the Boston music scene when my father was both chairman of the string department at BU and was at the was director of the Langey School of Music. So he was somebody my father was aware of, but one of my father's students was this guy's ex-girlfriend. And she had been quite suspicious that he had stolen it. And she told my father that, and he completely believed it, but there was just nothing to be done about it. First of all, Stradivarius violins were not as valuable then as they are now. My mother, as I, I said at the press conference, famously used to go around and ask her Tony friends whether whether they knew anybody in the mafia that could break <laughs> into this guy's house and see if the violin was there. That alarmed you greatly at the press conference. It did. I said, I said the, the better practice is not to call the mob, is to call the FBI or the U.S. Attorney's Office. So ultimately, ultimately it worked out. <laughs> ultimately, it worked out, and it was a fabulous press conference. In the middle of the summer, so it was front-page news in the New York Times and in just about every newspaper in the country. So my dad had one last shot of fame, <laughs> and it was wonderful. And on a more personal note, you know, he was 101 when he died, and he was very frail in the last year of his life. 
and it was time. But that press conference and all the memories that came back sort of reminded me what he was like until he was about 99 or 100 years old, what he was like when he was 40 and 50 and 60. And it made his death, I would have to say, more painful, but also more more wonderful for the memories. It was a lovely event, and we were happy to be able to return the violin and have all three sisters there in one place. Mm-hmm. So you've had, you know, the problem with you, Nina, is that you've done too many things for us to cover, even in the, in the long-form podcast. <laughs> What's, you know, maybe people don't appreciate, uh, having known for a long time that you have covered a lot of things, a lot of matters at the Justice Department, in particular you're known for all sorts of coverage of the Supreme Court and Supreme Court confirmation hearings, and that's one of the reasons I thought it would be great to have you on about now, because we have one of those looming again. But you have done all this work at a very, very high level, and you're not a lawyer. No, and I think it actually may make for more work that I have to do, but it's better that way. Because after all, the people you're communicating with on the radio or when I was a print reporter, most of them aren't lawyers. So you want to keep them interested. You want to make it simple enough and something complex, boil it down so that the average person can understand it, and at the same time, not dumb it down so that lawyers who are reading it or listening or watching me on television don't feel that I have dumbed it down for them either, that they've learned something. Well, that's a great challenge, actually. And and actually, what I try to do every week, because I am a lawyer, and I struggle with making sure that you're not dumbing it down, but you're also being clear about things. Do you have some tips for me on things to avoid? Well, the only thing I know is that as you get to know more about the law, and this is true for me too, you just have to remember not to assume. So if you are talking about the Second Amendment, for example, you have to say it's the right to bear arms. Or if you're talking about some concept of law, it's better just if you can avoid it. I try not ever to use the word plaintiff, for example, even though people who watch Judge Judy know who the plaintiff is. I just think it's a an odd kind of a word that may stop people in their tracks. And the whole idea for me is to tell a story, a narrative that has legal concepts in it, but where the meal you're eating tastes good without your realizing that it's also nourishing. That's the only way I know how to describe it. No, I've never heard it described that way. And I'm trying to deliver some high calorie meals. It's not always easy. So so let's talk about some of the things that you broke. First, why did you gravitate so much towards coverage of the court? Oh, I got assigned to it. It was really simple. 100% luck. It was 100%. When I worked for the late, great National Observer, which was a weekly newspaper published by Dow Jones, then publisher of the Wall Street Journal, they assigned me to cover the Supreme Court, as well as other things. And I did it well, and I started winning prizes for it. And I really was fascinated by it. I mean, I've always covered other things. I've covered politics. I've covered major scandals. I've, you know, but if you look at the newspaper on any day of the week, there is at least one story, and many times four or five, that involve the law. It's been a very wonderful and interesting life. There's a combination of two things. One, it's incredibly important and has an impact on people's lives. And particularly when you're talking about law and order or loss of people's liberty and crime, it's inherently fascinating. 
So you have not only you have not only covered the Supreme Court and Supreme Court confirmation hearings, but sometimes the things that you have reported have affected the proceedings themselves. You're not just a fly on the wall, and we'll do two of the most famous ones. And for listeners who don't appreciate this, it's quite a history of scoops you've had in a lot of different areas, but in particular on the Supreme Court. So in 1987, Ronald Reagan is the president, and he nominates to the Supreme Court a man by the name of Douglas Ginsburg, who was like Brett Kavanaugh today, was a judge in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And it's after Bork. And it's after Bork, which had been a, a derailed nomination for various reasons. We don't have time for Bork today. We're going to do Bork another day. Right. <laughs> no. Today today we'll talk about Douglas Ginsburg and Clarence Thomas. How about but, it's on, but it's only important because it is after Bork. So the right. Bork nomination fails, and the next nominee is Douglas Ginsburg. And he never made it to the court either. Why is that? Well, because I broke a story saying that he had smoked marijuana. And how did you know that? <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to tell you who my sources are. <laughs> Can you tell us like, like the sort of um, category of source? Was it someone who had smoked with him? Yes, okay. or people who had observed it or, you know, it sounds ridiculous today where it's, it's legal in, in Colorado. It's you're probably legal smoking, in a lot of states. You're probably smoking pot right now, right? No, but then it was illegal and the Reagan administration had a rule that it wouldn't hire for any position, including lowly assistant U.S. attorney positions, anybody who had smoked marijuana or used any other drug after he or she had been admitted to the bar. Now, Douglas Ginsburg had been assistant attorney general in the Reagan administration and then was on the D.C. Circuit. And he had been a professor at Harvard Law School and had smoked pot after being admitted to the bar. And probably worse yet for him, he'd done it in front of the children of some professors at Harvard Law School. Yep. And that may tell you why I got to know right. what I got to know. When you got the information, did you hesitate in any way to report it? Or is it just, you know, the normal journalistic impulse? It's important, it's newsworthy, and it's significant, and you reported it. Well, this is one of those cases where I have to report I was really dumb. I had gone to Boston to do a profile of him and of his legal philosophy, and I'd interviewed a whole lot of people. And among those people, I'd found out this information. And for some stupid reason, I didn't think that it was the lead necessarily. And I, But I knew it was important. And I call my boss and I tell her. And, I'm on, and by the time I land in Washington... Everybody is waiting for me, telling me that everybody knows I have this story in Washington and that the Post is wildly trying to match it, and I have to go on the air like that minute. And so all of my plans of how I was going to fit this in with his legal philosophy, that all just went to hell in a handbasket. And right. they, I go on the air, and, and I am not the person of today. The person of today would have understood, I think, better, A, B, C, D. 87 is a long time ago. I'm a, I'm a younger broadcast reporter. I have no idea what I said. I got it out there, and it got picked up immediately. And you know, these were very different times. And the Democrats all thought this was hilarious, and the Republicans all were horrified, and the nomination was withdrawn. <laughs> right. How did that make you feel, personally, that it was that reporting that was the cause of the withdrawal? You know, not the reporting, but the fact of it, and then you exposed it. Does that feel weird as a journalist? No. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't I mean, does really it feel satisfying think... in some way? Or it's just, it is what it is? 
In this case, you know, there were plenty of people who, even within the administration, who were not thrilled with this nomination. And Judge Ginsburg has gone on to have a rather distinguished career on the D.C. Circuit, conservative and distinguished. But he was extremely, I mean, it was a sort of cuckoo nomination at the time. He was not somebody who'd been on the circuit for a long time, who had earned some sort of big national reputation. And I think that there were people within the administration who were sort of not happy with that. And then, in addition, I later found out that there were other things that Biden looked at Ginsburg's record and said, this guy is not going to get confirmed. But I didn't know that at the time. Right. So fast forward a few years, not that many years, and the president nominates, the different president nominates Clarence Thomas. George H.W. Bush nominates Clarence Thomas to be on the Supreme Court. And everyone now knows that that was a rocky hearing for various reasons, but you are the one who got information about Anita Hill. How'd that come about? Well, for the summer of that year, I kept hearing stories that there were tales of sexual harassment involving Clarence Thomas, who, after all, at the time... He'd only been for on the D.C. Circuit for about a year. And before that, he'd been head of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. So this was not just what we might call today run-of-the-mill sexual harassment. This was the guy who was supposed to be enforcing that law if it was true. But I simply couldn't verify it. I tried medium hard uh, to tell you. I, I think that would describe the, the measures medium I Medium hard took. for you is probably pretty hard. No, I don't think it was because, you know, a sexual harassment story, take yourself back to that time, it was really sort of the idea of having this be, it was sort of icky. So I would say medium hard. And then I was sitting at the hearing where there was going to be a vote in committee on his nomination after the first hearing on his nomination. And I see that everybody has these large envelopes, brown envelopes, and they're all looking at something from those envelopes. And I don't know what it is. And some of them are just now receiving it, apparently. And then Biden says something really weird about there have been nefarious stories about the nominee that are not true. I don't know what he's talking about. After all, the first set of hearings was about his judicial philosophy. It was not about nefarious stories. I then, I get up and I go, there's something going on here. And I started kicking tires. I was very lucky that that was the moment I decided to kick tires and stuff started to come to me. Then I found out there was an affidavit that Anita Hill, this woman Anita Hill, had submitted and that I had to get hold of the affidavit and I had to talk to her. Which tires were you kicking? I can't tell you that. Oh, I gosh. Just kicked them. It's years ago. Sorry. There's no statute of limitations on the, these things? No. These, there's some of this stuff will go to my <laughs> with me to my deathbed. <laughs> okay. All right. But, but... I also had to make sure that this woman, Anita Hill, was a credible person. I mean, crazy people make allegations all the time. Sure. So I pretended that I was doing a story about young African-American professors, law professors, and I started calling up people that she had known, you know, at 
Oral Roberts and other places. And everybody said she was fabulous. And then I called the dean at the University of Oklahoma, who said wonderful things about her. And then I called her. And she said she knew why I was calling. I said I was writing this story. And she said, I know why you're calling. And she said to me that she wouldn't talk to me unless I obtained a copy of her affidavit. And I I think she thought that I couldn't do that. I don't think she really understood why she couldn't make these charges without having her name attached. And that was just a no-brainer to me. You can't make a serious charge against a nominee for the Supreme Court of the United States or anyone else for that matter. Right. And that's because it won't, it won't be believed. Well, not only it won't be believed, it's not fair. How do, you, how do you rebut an anonymous charge? Yeah, you have the right in court to confront the witnesses. I mean, it's what, you know, what J. Edgar Hoover said, once said we're faceless informers. I don't believe in faceless informers. You make a serious charge, you have to be there to make it. And so I finally I did obtain the affidavit, and I interviewed her, And I actually waited. I did something, again, I would never do today. I waited something like 36 hours to break the story because I couldn't reach Biden, the chairman of the committee. And I I got other senators on the phone who talked to me, but I couldn't reach him. And, And why was it that he didn't address this in the hearings? Why did this not come out? And you know, in hindsight, people said something. Democrats, one very liberal Democrat said to me when I talked to him, he said, oh, Nina, this is no silver bullet. But fortunately, fortunately, I didn't stop. And I give a lot of the credit to my late husband, Floyd Haskell, who had served in the United States Senate, who was a very decent wonderful human being who really hated my working late at night or on the weekends. But on this one, he said, what do you mean it doesn't matter? Of course it matters. This is a terrible thing if it's true. You go to work. (laughs) And I did. And And I did. Why was Biden ducking you, you think? He just didn't want to deal with it? I think he didn't want to deal with it. He didn't want to be the bad guy. It's just not his way. And the Republicans were very fierce, and I think he was he he's the classic student body president. He likes to be liked. Yeah. I like to be liked, too. It's unfortunate, but makes, sometimes makes three of us. you can't be. I'm just hoping that you will like me after this interview. <laughs> <laughs> That's my goal here, and get some tips. So you read the allegations. At the time that you read the affidavit, did you believe them, or did you have a, an open mind? All I knew was that they were serious allegations, and then I was able to verify that there were other people that she had told this to at a contemporaneous moment when it happened. So I was able to talk to a couple of people who very specifically recalled her describing these events at the time. By the way, you know, I am told that I do have young listeners. Perhaps we should remind people who don't know what a couple of the most salacious allegations were. Well, they were that he pressured her to go out with him, that he said very sexually explicit things about pubic hair on a Coke can, stuff that today would instantly get somebody fired. Right. During the time that he was her boss at the EEOC. 
and before that at the education department. Right. And the weird thing was that she went with him from the education department to the EEOC, even after, at one point, I think she was hospitalized because she was so upset by what was happening to her at work. But I came to the conclusion that she understood or believed that he was her ticket to having a successful legal career and that she sucked it up during those years. And then when the, when the nomination was made, she decided not to. And I have to say, you know, if you go back and you look at those hearings, she was totally believable and so was he. So what, is, so what does that mean? Who is to be believed, even if they're both credible sounding and believable? Well, she took a lie detector test. Now, it was privately administered by people who were experienced in law enforcement. He did not, but if I'd been in his position, I probably wouldn't have either. There was a great desire on the part of some people to say, well, couldn't they both be telling the truth? And the answer to that is no. And I have never said, well, what he said was not true or what she said was true. I just, I'm just not going to go there. That's yeah. not my job. So this happened while I was in law school. When I was at Columbia Law School, and most students at the school didn't have televisions at the time. And I just remember being riveted. There was a television in the common area, and people mm -hmm. just watched, you know, in between classes or around classes. I think classes were going on then. And we were, you know, young, aspiring lawyers, and it was just a shocking scene for us. So now I want to go back to what you were observing. So the story breaks, this awkward questioning takes place, you know, back, this is, I, I always forget if it's 91 or 92. 91. 91. And it's all men up there. And this salacious material is being asked about, how did you think that Anita Hill was being treated? And did you have a reaction as a woman watching that? Not just a journalist. You know, he was able to defend himself, and he had lots of defenders on the committee. She really didn't. And she was, I think, 26 years old. She was very poised. And they were suggesting that she had erotomania, either that she made this up or that she... I mean, it was just, it was awful. Let's say you're 25 years old today. If you went back and you looked at her testimony, the way she was treated was almost inconceivable. And whatever blowback I got, which was plenty and very upsetting, was just minor compared to her. And I have forever been grateful that I was in my 40s then, because if I'd been... 25 or 6, her age, and people were screaming, United States senators were screaming at me the way they were and subpoenaing me and bullying me. I would not have known how to handle it. And she handled it with great poise. You, in fact, had to get a lawyer. Yeah. A former guest on this show, Floyd Abrams. <laughs> yes, he was my lawyer. Nice catch. Good lawyer. Well, I when I was watching television one night, just after the hearings. And it was very clear to me that they were going to launch an investigation of me and how I got the story. And I got up and I called Floyd Abrams, who was my friend and somebody I used for, you know, interviewed about First Amendment questions for years. And I said, if they subpoena me, will you be my lawyer? 
And he said, oh, they're not going to subpoena you. <laughs> I said, yeah, they are. He said, no, they're not. I said, well, just will you be my lawyer? And, of course, NPR at the time wanted to pick my lawyer, and I just, you know, we didn't have the same interests. And I said, no, I want my lawyer to be Floyd Abrams, period. So that subpoena was authorized by the chair of the committee, who was a Democrat. That, that would never happen today either. Well, what they did was they asked me to testify. I came with Floyd Abrams to the committee and refused to answer any important questions. And then the next question was whether they could hold me in contempt. And that's when Pat Moynihan, the then-senator from New York, saved my butt. And he just went on to the Senate floor and started, you know, screaming and throwing a fit. And, <laughs> you know. And saying that this was never going to happen on his watch. And I think he was, he was on the Rules Committee. And he was just saying there would be blood on the wall, as I think what he said, before he would let there be a subpoena. It's not as if I knew... Senator Moynihan well, or he was a great source of mine. I did not. But I think at that point, senators looked around and they said, hmm, this has not gone well for us, this whole process. Do we want to put another woman in the chair and then possibly send her to jail because she won't tell us who ratted us out for not doing our job? And it was election year. I don't think that's a good idea. And it went away. Yeah, so they're they're not as stupid as they sometimes look. Mm-hmm. Do you see any when you when you see and read about and watch the news stories in the last year about sexual misconduct and worse in the Me Too movement, and you look back at the Anita Hill hearings and how she came forward? How do you compare the two time periods? It makes me feel old. <laughs> That's I mean you know what young women have come to resent rightfully and complain about rightfully would have been nothing when I was a young reporter. I, I would have had nobody to complain to about it, and if I did, they would have done nothing, nothing about it. But I guess I think that there is a, a continuum or a scale here, and there is so much pent-up anger among a lot of young women about the way they've been treated, that there are a lot of calls for execution for what I would consider relatively minor offenses. And that puts me in a very conservative position, I guess. But I wouldn't want any young woman reporter to have to suffer a lot of the indignities I suffered as a young woman. But most of those with one exception I won't bother you with, I would not consider fireable offenses. I would consider them offenses worthy of great rebuke so that they didn't recur. But I wouldn't want somebody fired over them. So let's talk about the current news. There is once again a vacancy in the Supreme Court because Anthony Kennedy decided to retire. And we have Brett Kavanaugh. What do you think is the outlook for his confirmation? Well, the Democrats are disarmed. The process is so political. Um, the Republican groups ha are far better organized about how to su support him 
then the Democratic groups are organized about how to oppose him. And most important, most important, Democratic voters still have not coalesced around the courts as a major, major consideration in their voting patterns. And why is so? I asked the same question to Vanita Gupta last week, who was the guest, former civil rights head of DOJ. What do you think is the reason for that? Even though people on one side, on the progressive side, say that they're very upset and say that all these rights are going to be taken away, and I tend to agree and worry about some of those things as well. But but why is it? given that these things are important, that as a political matter, they seem to be less significant in how people organize themselves on the left than on the right? I think perhaps it's because progressives have, at least on the social issues, not been on the losing side consistently. And for conservatives, they have been. So they're more aggrieved. They're more aggrieved and for a longer period, and they've been at this for 30, 40 years, Uh, whether the question is abortion or gun rights or LGBT rights or religious freedom questions. They have been more consistently aggrieved, and while they have won some of the time, they have lost more often. And they have organized around that, whether it's the Federalist Society among young lawyers and the Koch brothers and other big corporate donors who fund people with social agenda grievances because they, A, agree with them, but B, because they have very big grievances about regulation and the role of government. And so this is a way to fund people who have different grievances, but have the same objective long-term. Do you think Brett Kavanaugh is someone who would have been nominated to the court if any of the other Republicans had won instead of Trump? Yeah. Is in the mainstream of that kind of pick? I think he's in the mainstream of the modern Republican Party view of the law. Which many people still might find, you know, to be very hard right. Very hard right. Certainly it is compared to... to Douglas Ginsburg. Well, even to Douglas Ginsburg, but if you look at the kinds of people appointed to the court by other Republican presidents, by today's standards, they would be considered everywhere from Rehnquist would be conservative, the chief justice, but not as conservative as many of these folks. And somebody like John Paul Stevens, or infamously for the right, David Souter, or Harry Blackman, or even Warren Burger would be considered on the pretty far left. They would not be even considered for appointment to the Supreme Court by modern-day Republican presidents, I don't think. So these hearings will come up, presumably, unlike Merrick Garland, Brett Kavanaugh will get hearings in the Senate. For people who haven't really followed this but who care about it, what should they be looking for? Or are the hearings, do you think, in some people's views, shed no light at all because people don't like to answer questions? If you're a citizen who cares about the court and about the country, should you be tuning in? And if so, what should you be looking for? Or should should you not bother? Oh, I think you should bother because I, I think Brett Kavanaugh will have to answer more questions than Neil Gorsuch did. He has ruled on in 12 years on more hot-button issues and given speeches about presidential power, about national security, about abortion, about regulation, an awful lot of things, gun rights. 
And if the members of the committee do their homework and are able to ask focused questions, which, of course, is a big if, uh, (laughs) and to stick with their focus and to divide up areas of expertise so that one takes one subject and another one takes a different subject and they keep going back and insisting on answers, you will get, I think, a fairly good picture of what Brett Kavanaugh thinks is settled law and what is not. And that will tell you a lot about what kind of a judge he is. It's very hard, these hearings. You know, I, I was – the first time I met you, you would, you would have no reason to remember this, but was during the confirmation hearing of John Roberts. And I found myself in that room in, in the Hart Senate office building talking to you briefly. I'm thinking, wow, I'm talking to Nina Totenberg. And you're like, I don't know who this kid is I'm talking to. No, that's but, not true. But um, I'd, seen, I'd seen you sitting up there. Sitting up there quietly, looking, Looking like you knew everything. Looking young and young and somewhat bored. Um, <laughs> But but it's hard when you know I worked for Senator Senator Schumer at the time, who was I think sixth or seventh or eighth in uh, seniority, and so he's re- literally asking his questions of both Roberts and Alito, thirteenth or fourteenth because you you alternate between Democrat and mm-hmm. Republican. Do you have a view on whether or not just going forward there's a better way to get nominees to answer questions? I mean, Arlen Specter, who was the chairman for a while of that committee. I think used to famously say, you know, people will answer what they figure they need to and just enough to get confirmed. It's like passing the bar exam by one point. I think that's true. But if you look back at hearings in the past, people did answer a fair number of questions. The so-called Ginsburg rule that the Republicans keep, you know, saying, you know, no hints, no previews of what you you might rule. Yes, she did say that, but then she answered a whole lot of questions, including about Roe versus Wade. Very forthright answers. And she answered questions about government funding of the arts, for God's sakes. There were some things she absolutely wouldn't answer. And there's a study out that actually collates all of this back to the first one of these hearings in 1939. And she was among the most forthright, and Gorsuch was the least forthright in 50 years. The most unforthright was Abe Fortas when he was nominated to be chief justice. He didn't answer almost anything. And so I think, you know, if there is the possibility that you, the nominee, will not be confirmed, and that's a big if at the moment, if there is that possibility, though, you will answer what you have to. So Arlen Specter famously asked Justice Rehnquist, who was being nominated to be Chief Justice, his view on what was then a big hot topic of the day, something called court stripping, which I won't bother you with now. And Rehnquist wouldn't answer. He said he thought it'd be inappropriate to answer. And finally, finally Specter said to him, well, you're free not to answer and I'm free not to vote for you. And he told the White House he was prepared not to vote for him. And the next day, Rehnquist answered the question. So what scoop are you going to report about Brett Kavanaugh? I don't have one. You don't have one. And I, 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 have I you suspect- asked the marijuana question? Have you asked about the pot? No. Okay. And, you know, whatever it is, they will. If, if he smoked pot, they'll tell us way early because everybody immunizes themselves by telling you early now. You know, Al well, so Gore did. Issue, right. <laughs> Clarence Thomas did. Nobody wants it to be an issue anymore. So they all say, oh, and, and he smoked pot. And they may not, they may not have <laughs> inhaled, but, they, but they'll admit mm-hmm. to smoking. Well, so the one issue has come up. I don't know if it's a real issue or not, but apparently the nominee has racked up some considerable credit card debt, mm-hmm. uh, according to the, to the White House. 
because he loves the Nationals. But it's yeah. very substantial. And, and people have raised, you know, I guess a legitimate question that is not about his ideology or his viewpoints, but about his judgment as to how that credit card debt got extinguished so quickly. Is that something that you think is significant or worth pursuing given well, your role as a I'm sure there's an answer and I'm sure we'll get it probably from Republicans who ask him that question. It's a little weird and a little mysterious that a guy who has no investments, um, whose only asset is his house, is apparently, because he's such a big Nats fan, he and a group of other people, some of them his friends, some of them not his friends, buy this big block of tickets. And he's, I guess he carries the float essentially. Right. Why? I don't know. Why would you do that when you don't have, have money? When, and why would you put it on your credit card, which costs so much in terms of interest. interest? Is that enough to actually hurt his nomination? I doubt it very much, unless somebody paid off the debt as a quid pro quo. Now, that's not going to happen. I'm sure that's not what happened. I just don't know what did happen, and it's weird. Yeah. That's all. So it's worth looking at. Yes. What about this other bit of reporting that I've seen about um, whether or not Anthony Kennedy sort of engaged in some transaction, I don't know how you want to describe it, and became comfortable that the White House was going to nominate his former clerk, Brett Kavanaugh, and only in that circumstance decided he was comfortable in stepping down. Does that does that sound right to you? Does that sound credible to you? And no. It doesn't. Why is that? No. It, first of all, because I, I know him. I don't know him really, really, I mean, he's not a personal friend of mine, but I've known him. I've watched him over the years. After he stepped down, he had a number of us in for an off-the-record chat, and it was very clear to me why he had stepped down and, and that he had been on the fence up until the last minute, that his kids, plural, didn't want him to step down, uh, that his wife certainly didn't ask him to step down, but that, you know, he's 81 years old. He's about to be 82, I guess, and and that his wife, who'd broken a hip and a wrist this year, that she needed him and that she that in this stage in his life, she deserved to have a husband who wasn't reading briefs every night. And his description, certainly, of his meeting with the president was amicable, and I'm sure the president asked his views on potential nominees, and he said it would have been... You know, he's made clear, let's put it this way, that he's made clear that he thought it would be inappropriate to answer that kind of question. It probably would be unsocial to not say, well, he's a fine guy and he worked, you know, I certainly loved him very much and, you know, when he worked for me. I'm sure the Federalists think they were trying to smooth the way to ease him out, to get him to retire. I don't think they had any impact whatsoever. Zero. If anything, my view was that they were making it harder for him to retire by keeping up with these suggestions, various suggestions, that he'd better do it quickly. For a while, there was a rumor that he wasn't well. That kind of a rumor just never panned out. And I just think he was, it was time. Sometimes, you you know, you have other things you may want to do. And he'd been in at the court for 30 years and before that, a court of appeals judge. Do you think you'll be on my I, podcast? Mm. <laughs> maybe not not right not, away. Not, maybe maybe you could provide color commentary during the hearings. <laughs> okay, it's not that ridiculous. 
but I'm but I'm glad you're laughing. I have, I have three more hours of questions for you, but we don't have time for that. So through the efforts of the brilliant researchers and um, help that I have on the show, I have learned about my favorite article that you've written. Some I bet ago, I know what it is. In 1974, mm-hmm. where you listed the 10 dumbest members of Congress. If you were writing that article today, give us a couple of names who would be on the 10 dumbest. <laughs> I'm not sure I could do that. I had to research that very carefully. I really did. How did you I get... <laughs> how did you... How do you how, <laughs> I had to, first of all, define what, what I meant by dumb. It right. wasn't somebody who a was... A low IQ fr- person, because, you know, the president has a view of, you know, who's dumb, and he calls them low IQ. But I'm not sure he's done any research. No, but it was not people who said sort of stupid things because they drank too much, for example. I was a young reporter at the time. Nobody knew anything about me. I was young. I was female. I was cute. And, you know, and members of Congress would come off the floor to talk to me. And I'd get suggestions from people, right and left, and interest groups and lobbyists. And I would interview them. One of the... Well, you know, I mean, I'm sorry. You, got, you mean they would nominate people for the dumb list? Yeah, they would dominate people for the dumb list. I went around asking people <laughs> right. well, who, who are the there. dumbest members of Congress, right, right? right? And so then when I would get a name, I would see if they would come talk to me off the floor. And I would try to make some sort of a judgment whether they were legitimate candidates for the dumb list. So one of them, I remember asking what he thought of SALT, because the SALT talks, the strategic... Oh, no. Did he make a reference to condiments? He thought it was salt and pepper, yeah. yes. <laughs> I figured, okay, he gets on the list. Um, and then, my I don't know, you probably don't remember this. It's a bit this, anecdotal, but, Nina, but okay. Yeah, but I was, I was the, the magazine I wrote this for, I was the Washington editor and writer and everything of Washington for, it was called New Times Magazine. It was sort of an offshoot of New York Magazine. So it had a subscription, as I like to put it, of about 14 people at the time. And... I write this article, and everybody was unanimous about who the dumbest was. And it was the senator from Virginia, a guy named Bill Scott. Okay. There was nobody who dissented, not on the right, the left, Democrats, Republicans. Everybody said he was the dumbest. So he was. I dubbed him the king of dumb. And his picture was on the front cover, on the cover of the magazine that said king of dumb. Now, remember, this is during Watergate. So here I am. I'm... I'm in the lobby of the House where they're having impeachment hearings, and I'm talking to the ranking Republican on the committee, and I see a horde of reporters heading towards us. And I say to myself, my God, what do they know that I don't know that I could ask him before they get here and I could have something of a scoop? And, I, and I'm racking my brains and they come, come, come closer, 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 and finally they arrive and they don't want him at all. They want me because Bill Scott has just had a press conference to deny that he is the dumbest member of Congress. <laughs> and thereby proving. Thereby proving that he is the yes. dumbest member of Congress. People had never heard of New Times Magazine, had never read this article. Like I said, the magazine probably had a subscription rate of about 14 people. And now he has made himself a national story. How do you defend yourself? <laughs> is, it like, is it like Fredo and the Godfather? I'm not... I'm smart. I'm not dumb, like they say. I don't know, but calling a press conference to deny it. I should have researched not more. The way. How many more terms did he serve? I think he was defeated in the next election, but he wasn't up that time. It wasn't. I mean, 
what can I say? There, I'm not. <laughs> You've said enough about that, man. <laughs> we we have to go in a second. Do you have any final word on before I let you go on why it is that the medium of radio and podcast is kind of a version of radio? Why that remains powerful and why it resonates with people? I do, and it comes down to why all the top chefs I've ever met are big fans of NPR. You don't have to look at the radio to listen. And while you do other things, often mindless things, whether it's cutting vegetables or making beds or driving, or driving you can listen and you are appreciative of listening to something that is compelling and that is interesting and that gets into your brain. And furthermore, it allows you to have some imagination. You imagine what the characters that we are talking about, what they look like, if you don't know. You imagine a scene, if I describe it. A good narrative makes the listener have in his or her head a drama. And the drama plays out without any costumes, without any pictures. It plays out in your head. That's the best of what I can do for you. And at the end of it, it's a drama that matters. But that's why radio survives. You just let yourself listen and think. Well, thanks for telling some stories today. It's been my pleasure. Now, can I want to do this someday where I get to interview you. As long as you don't call me one of the 10 dumbest podcasts. Members of Congress. Members no, of Congress. But, but you ought to let, let one of, or two of us do a podcast with you where we interview you. Happy and if you it. say no, you're a wuss. <laughs> Look, I'll do it, okay? If you want me to bring a violin, I'm happy to bring a violin. Whatever, whatever <laughs> it takes. Okay. okay. Thank you so much, Nina. Take care. So this is the point in the show where I talk about something in the news that struck me, and usually it's something that I find myself in my in my reading of the news from day to day. But this time, uh, I was alerted to a story by someone on Twitter whose handle is at Jeffos, J-E-F-F-F-O-S, who linked to a story in the Star Tribune out of Minneapolis about a baseball game. And when I thank that listener for bringing the article to my attention. Now, it's not a story about baseball, although it initially seems like it is. So at a game between the Tampa Bay Rays and the Minnesota Twins, last Sunday, July 15th, played in Minnesota, there was an odd thing that happened. So in the fifth inning, the Twins were trailing 4-1, to one, and the Rays had two men on base threatening to score also. And the Twins manager did what looked to be a strange thing. He brought in Fernando Rodney to come in, who usually pitches as the closer. In fact, the last time he had pitched so early in a game was 13 years earlier. And even though it was not his usual time to come into the game, Rodney got the Twins out of a jam by striking out the first batter and getting the next batter to ground out to first base, and so all was good. And so the question that was raised by baseball fans and people who were present was why bring Rodney in so early? Was this some new, bold strategy on the part of the Twins? Was there an injury that people weren't aware of? And it turns out that the reason Rodney was brought in early to get his sort of pitching out of the way was he had an incredibly important appointment in Miami. It was an immigration hearing that could not be rescheduled. And so the flight that he had to be on 
was scheduled to go out before the game would be over. So the manager brought him in, let him do his work, and sent him on his way. And it wasn't just any kind of hearing. Fernando Rodney, who was born in the Dominican Republic, had to get to Miami ASAP to take his oath of citizenship. Rodney later documented what happened and where he went on his Instagram account. Here's what he wrote, quote, After 19 years in this wonderful country, today I am blessed to say that I am an official U.S. citizen. Today I fly the American flag, but in my heart always hold my Dominican flag. I want to thank all those who have been with me throughout the process and especially thank the Twins organizations for allowing me to catch my flight. So congratulations to Fernando Rodney on becoming a U.S. citizen. One of the great honors you can have in life. But there's another wonderful epilogue to the story. So when Rodney came into the game in the fifth inning, the Twins were trailing 4-1. to Well, the Twins ended up tying it, and they went to extra innings. And then in the 10th inning, the Twins won it with a walk-off grand slam to take the game 11-7. to And all I'll say is, whatever you think of the Twins, or the Tampa Bay Rays, or baseball, if the story of Fernando Rodney becoming a U.S. citizen doesn't warm your heart, then nothing will. God bless America. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Nina Totenberg. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with a hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send me an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, Jake McAbee, and Vinay Basti. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.